friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Episode 2. I'm Neil White, joined by my brother, David White. Thanks for joining me, David. Always glad to be here, Neil. I understand it's hot as heck where you are uh, recording this, David. Uh, how you staying cool? Drinking lots of water, thanking God for air conditioning. You're so cool, you must have a lot of fans. That's my bad pun for the day. All right, let's get into this podcast about history, and I guess it's time to ask you the big question, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's the night of October 20th, 1932, and Tim Buck is crouching in his cell in the Kingston Penitentiary as the guards fire their rifles through the window. According to the Royal Commission to Investigate the Penal System of Canada, the shots were fired either with the deliberate intent of injuring Buck or willfully reckless as to whether they did or not. It is perhaps the closest we have ever come to the state-sponsored assassination of the leader of a Canadian political party. Okay, Tim Buck, I've never heard this name. He's a Canadian, obviously, the leader of a Canadian political party. Uh, Who is he the leader of? Tim Buck was, from 1929 to 1962, the leader of the Canadian Communist Party. Not perhaps our favorite people, but Canadians nonetheless. And in 1932, he finds himself in prison? He's in prison and being shot at, neither of which is great. But maybe we'll start with how he ended up in prison. So the Canadian Criminal Code at the time had a uh, provision within it, Section 98, which made it illegal to belong to a group or organization which advocated for the violent overthrow of the Canadian government. Okay, that sounds like a fairly uh, useful provision. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks people should be violently overthrowing the Canadian government. Did Tim Buck think that? Well, this is where it gets interesting. So, in 1930, with the Depression coming on, Tim Buck is arrested as a agitator and charged under Section 98 of the Canadian Criminal Code, along with seven other communists who were arrested at the Communist Party headquarters in Toronto. At their trial, they argue that they've never advocated for the violent overthrow of the government of Canada, and it proves very difficult for the government to actually find specific proof either that any of the men on trial have specifically advocated the violent overthrow of the government or that the Canadian Communist Party as a formal organization has done so. On the other hand, it's very easy for the government to find lots of people who identify as communists or belong to communist parties in other countries who are advocating in favor of the violent overthrow of all capitalist governments, the Canadian one included. And that creates a very controversial, hard-fought trial as to whether the Canadian Communist Party encompasses anyone who advocates specifically for the use of violence in their efforts to change the government of Canada. 
and the government successfully makes its case. They do. On the other hand, the trial is controversial, partially because the government goes to some lengths to try and discourage lawyers from working as the defense. And indeed, Tim Buck decides he's going to defend himself, which is a not inconsiderable factor in his being found guilty. In point of fact, for his closing arguments, rather than making a conventional argument that the Canadian government hasn't proved its case, he decides to give a three-hour speech uh, on the history and theory of the Communist Party of Canada helpfully pointing out all of the times when they've mentioned that violence might be necessary for uh, changing the world state, in theory, to argue that they're not specifically uh, threatening the Canadian government. But it certainly doesn't help his case to the jury uh, with this long rambling and not necessarily... Uh, always focused on actually proving himself innocent, closing argument. I think they say that a uh, man who is his own lawyer has a fool for a client and an even bigger fool for a lawyer. It certainly seems to be the case here. It certainly does. On the other hand, Tim Buck does get to cement his position as leader, which at the time he was still a very new leader of the Communist Party. And he knows that because this is a trial... It will be widely reported. So by making this long, rambling three-hour speech that's essentially a campaign speech, he does a very good job of cementing himself as the leader of the Canadian communists, even as he does a terrible job of keeping himself out of jail. Now, if I was on trial, I would think keeping myself out of jail would be the goal number one, but he ends up in jail. Is, is there appeals? How does this process unfold from there? Well, there are some standard efforts at appeal that get nowhere, but very quickly, he and his uh, the other seven men who were on trial with him end up imprisoned at the Kingston Penitentiary. And initially, it seems as if that will be the end of the matter. None of them have a longer than five-year jail sentence, uh, which is certainly more time than you want to spend in jail, but it's not the end of their lives or anything. And... It seems like this will be a minor issue that the communists will be angry and call him a political prisoner, but the rest of Canada doesn't pay a lot of attention to the fact that eight guys just got arrested for advocating violent overthrow of the government. That sounds reasonable to Canadians at the time. I was going to ask you about that and Canadians at the time. What was the sentiment like? Was there, I mean, in the 1930s, uh, you know, the sort of the beginning of that cent or decade, uh, was there a lot of communist um, support in Canada? Well, that's one of the interesting things. When Tim Buck goes to jail, the Communist Party of Canada is a very small organization, roughly 1,300 members which isn't very big for a political party. On the other hand, there's a lot of trade unions that, although they're not necessarily communist, are certainly more and more willing to ally with the communists as the depression starts to grow. One of the reasons why the government was so aggressive about prosecuting this possibly dubious case in 1930 
was that they were seeing a growth in the number of communists and were hoping that they could nip it in the bud by crushing the leaders. But the real reason that caused the growth in numbers wasn't the charismatic leadership of a guy who will happily ramble on for three hours at the closing arguments of his trial. It was because conditions are very bad and Canadians were looking for a way out, a way to not be trapped in a terrible depression. Right. This is the start of the depression. Uh, You mentioned, I think, that Tim Buck came to power and uh, as a leader, came... uh became the leader in 1929, which was the start of the depression, right? Yes, he was slightly before the big stock market crash. But certainly, all of the communist organizations worldwide, once they understood what was happening, would seek to take advantage of the Great Depression. But also, ordinary people who weren't communists and wouldn't think of themselves as communists in ordinary times were more and more willing to consider all kinds of crazy uh, political ideologies that were promising economic prosperity. So let's jump ahead to that night you mentioned in 1932, where Tim Buck finds himself being shot at while in prison. This is a very confusing story in a lot of ways. So we know that on October 17th, 1932, there was a riot at the Kingston Penitentiary. Uh, This wasn't a super uncommon event. Canadian prisons had a number of problems at the time, and inmate riots weren't uh, unheard of, certainly. And Tim Buck was present. The prison guards and the prison warden accused him of instigating and leading the riot, but eyewitnesses who were prisoners said that actually he was trying to avoid violence and get a peaceful hearing of some of their grievances. Uh, They felt they were being forced to work too many hours in a day. But then you have three days The riot ends, and then on October 20th, according to the official records of the prison, there's an aftershock of the riot. A group of men who are still bitter because of the riot, who are confined to their cells while there's an investigation of what caused it ongoing, start trying to break out. And that certainly happened, but it happened in cell block D. And Tim Buck was imprisoned in cell block F. But at some point on the night of October 20th, and this is verified by forensic evidence, the bullets were retrieved, uh, a group of guards, no one knows precisely who, decided to go to cell block F. And even though there weren't any specific reports of disturbances there, they opened fire on the cell, specifically the cell where Tim Buck is incarcerated. Now, do we have any sense of why this would have come about? Uh, did, did they not like Tim Buck very much? You mentioned that he was sort of leading this grievances, uh, though he wanted it to be peaceful. This is a very hotly debated topic on the, uh, the history of this incident. 
Of course, the communists virtually immediately accused this of being a conspiracy heading straight to the top. They felt that R.B. Bennett, the Canadian prime minister at the time, must have given the orders for this to happen. But it seems much more plausible that the prison warden, himself not a man who liked communists or the communist ideology, and who also didn't like Tim Buck specifically, may have believed that Tim Buck was perhaps a more important leader in some of the disturbances that were going on than was actually the case, and may have given some unclear orders to make sure that he wasn't leading the disturbances on the night of the 20th. But apparently, at some point, somebody decided that the best way to do that would be to shoot into his cell. So how does Tim Buck survive this? You'd think it would be like uh, shooting fish in a barrel. You would, but the guards don't actually enter the cell block at any point. For whatever reason, they decide to do all of their firing from outside into the window. And prisons at the time were very substantial buildings made of stone. So once the firing starts, Tim Buck gets underneath the windowsill of his prison and all of the bullets have to be coming through the window above where he is hiding. And after a very short period of time, the guards stop and leave. Whether because they realize that there's no riot going on in cell block F and decide that whatever they were doing was wrong and they need to flee, or whether they're afraid that they're going to be discovered who specifically was shooting, that some of the prisoners might see them and be able to testify isn't clear. But after a very brief, but presumably for Tim Buck, terrifying few minutes, the guards are gone again. So does this have a happy ending for Tim Buck? Well, perhaps. In the immediate aftermath, there's been firing into his cell, the guards leave, and then he's simply left in solitary confinement for several weeks. And at the time, it seemed like that would be it. Nobody in Canada outside of the prison knew that this had happened at all. Uh, one of the things about being a prison guard is that if you don't report an incident at the prison, word doesn't leak out. But this is when the prison officials come across a dilemma. They want to prosecute all of the uh, inmates who were involved in the riot, which they're legally required to do. But that means that they have to bring Tim Buck into a courtroom and have him defend himself again against a new charge, the charge of participating in a riot. And when they do that, when they bring Tim Buck into the courtroom in Toronto, he, of course, immediately tells the judge that somebody tried to murder him, that bullets were fired into his cell. And this ignites a firestorm of controversy. This would seem like a problem. Yes, uh, even though the actual court case moves on quite quickly, the judge determines that although his being shot at is certainly not acceptable, it's not related to the case at hand, determines that he was technically a participant in a riot since that happened, but also that he wasn't a ringleader and 
should get a minimum addition to a sentence of only a few months, but that doesn't really matter. The headlines and all the newspapers that cover the trial have nothing to do with the riot. Everybody who is talking about it is talking about the report that bullets were fired. And this becomes such a uh, important, discussed incident that people demand an investigation. And once there's an investigation and the investigators go to a cell and immediately find the bullet holes from the firing, it's no longer something that the government can just keep a lid on. But of course, that doesn't mean that the government can keep a lid on or that the people of Canada are just willing to join the communists in an immediate outburst of protest. Most people are very confused as to exactly what happened. A lot of people feel that it was probably a riot and therefore it was probably a necessary response on the guards parts on the part of the guards in self-defense. But it becomes a increasingly growing political controversy as the weeks pass by. And so the government has to launch an investigation? The government has to launch an investigation. They pass it over to a royal commission, which eventually expands to investigate the entire penal system of Canada. I quoted from their report at the start of this episode. Um, it never leads to any criminal charges. No one ever determines which guards specifically fired into the cell. But as more information comes out, it starts to reach... Uh, members of the public who are increasingly upset with the government of the time, with what happened, and with Section 98 itself. So ultimately, this firing might uh, have done more damage to the, the prison system and the, the legal system than uh, you know good it did for them. They thought that maybe they could eliminate Tim Buck, but... Not only did they fail to eliminate Tim Buck, but it, it ultimately leads to bigger changes. It leads to a lot of changes. Um, the prison system, once the Archambault report, as the Royal Commission becomes known, is made, some major changes are made in the Canadian prison system and how they treat prisoners. But also, it becomes an increasing political incident. Uh, as I said... The Communist Party, when Tim Buck became leader, had 1,300 members. Well, a party created specifically to advocate for the release of Tim Buck and the seven other men who were arrested with him on the grounds that they were being mistreated as political prisoners by the government, gets 17,000 members. Wow. So a lot of support uh, for this idea that you know, you shouldn't be arrested for your political beliefs in Canada, that, that all political parties have a right to at least uh, contest their ideas. So what happens from there? Well, the party I've referred to with 17,000 members is called the Canadian Labour Defence League. And they're led by a guy named A.E. Smith, who's a uh, local... Uh, former Methodist preacher who went into radical politics. And he is obviously interested in raising the profile of this case even more. 
So he creates a short play, which he puts on in Toronto, called Eight Men Speak, about the trial and the shooting. And this just leads to one of another dramatic court case. Is it any good? I have never seen Eight Men Speak. I would not have high hopes. But there's a dramatic court case because the government charges A. Smith with sedition for his... uh, his play. So he now is on trial on the grounds that his play is advocating against the government. But this time, the trial has a very different outcome. So maybe lessons were learned from the first time around? Certainly, yes. The jury uh, is much less deferential to the Crown throughout the trial, but it's not just the jury who are different. A. Smith brings a very professional legal team paid for by donations from across the country. And together, they very quickly demolish the government's argument. And he's let free once again with a high profile. And now with everybody talking about it, William Lyon Mackenzie King enters the stage. Is he the prime minister at this point? No, he is the leader of the opposition. R.B. Bennett is still the prime minister, but Mackenzie King wants to become the prime minister. And the fact that there's this incident ongoing that is drawing so much political enthusiasm means that Mackenzie King jumps on board and announces that if the Liberal Party of Canada wins the next election, they will free Tim Buck and abolish Section 98. And so uh, that seems like a good development for Tim Buck. It certainly does. Um, And indeed, that's how things roll out for Tim Buck. The liberals win their next election. They actually don't free him. He comes up for parole and is released on parole in the ordinary course of things uh, because several years have passed while all this was occurring but he's now a high-profile political figure in Canada. And as I've already mentioned, up until 1962, he will continue leading the Communist Party in various forms, advocating that Canada becomes communist. Obviously, he doesn't succeed, but for the rest of his life, he's just an ordinary political figure, not a prisoner. And he never tries to violently overthrow the government either. He does not lead a violent communist revolution in Canada. Did they, in fact, eliminate Section 98? They did. The Liberal Party did, in point of fact, follow through on that promise and eliminate Section 98 from the Canadian Constitution. The other men who had been arrested, the other seven who I've mentioned several times, six of them were released at this point and also went back to communist organizing. But there's one more interesting little story I want to tell you related to this, which is the story of the eighth man. Mm -hmm. So Tomo Kasich was arrested in 1930 along with the other communist leaders because he happened to be in the Communist Party headquarters at the time. He was a communist organizer and a member of the party, certainly, but he was just a ordinary traveling member, not a senior leader. He'd actually just come back from a tour of the Timmins Curlet area uh, when he was arrested. He was the youngest man and the least obviously 
connected of the prisoners, so the judge decided to give him the shortest sentence, which you would ordinarily think is a good thing. Uh, we prefer not to be in jail. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. But it is. In this case, it turns out to be a bad thing. Tomo Kasich is an immigrant, and the Bennett government, as well as this one dramatic trial of communists, had a formal uh, effort made to deport any communists who were immigrants to Canada who didn't have citizenship because that was legal and a way to get rid of them. So when Tomo Kasich walks out of jail, Bennett is still prime minister, and he is immediately sentenced to being deported back to his home country. But there's a problem. Two problems, in fact. Okay, what are the two problems, David? The first problem is that the country he came from was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But World War I has intervened since he first emigrated to Canada, and that country no longer exists. The second problem is that the country which the Canadian government decides he should be deported to, Yugoslavia, executing communists. So being deported there as a communist is not something Tomo wants to happen. So what does he do to uh, try and prevent that? Well, there's not much that he can do, but luckily for him, as a communist party member, he has some friends in Europe. When he lands off from a steamer in France as part of his trip to Yugoslavia, courtesy of the Canadian government, a group of French communists break him out of the, uh, train car which he is supposed to be taken and smuggle him to the soviet union in order to keep him safe and uh so how does this all end for him well he goes on to have a very adventurous life he decides that he needs to fight against fascism uh because he feels that it is obviously a reflection of the sort of things that were done to him so he becomes a volunteer goes to spain during the spanish civil war and fights in the international brigades uh, when the war ends, he escapes to France because the Spanish fascists win the Civil War. In France, he's interned, but World War II breaks out, and not wanting to be trapped by the Nazis, he breaks out of an internment camp in France, and this time decides that he will go to Yugoslavia under a false name in order to join the Yugoslav partisans and fight for his country's freedom, which he does. He loses a leg fighting in World War II with the resistance in Yugoslavia. And then eventually he dies in a new free and communist Yugoslavia that he helped to build. Wow, quite, quite the life uh, from a crazy trial in Canada to Spain, France, Yugoslavia. Uh, what, a, what an adventure. Yeah, certainly a uh, fascinating coda to a very dramatic story uh, overall, yes. So that's the story of how the Canadian government almost executed the leader of a Canadian political party. I never heard this, Dave. What a crazy story. I just ran across it a few weeks ago, and I said to myself, David, this has to be on the podcast you're putting together. All right. Well, we have some time to uh, play a quick game as we like to do at the end of the podcast. If you want to play along, Dave, uh, you in? I'm in. All right. Simple game today. It's uh, called Before or After. So uh, as you can guess, you're going to be guessing whether something happened before or after. And uh, 
the United States, of course, there are 50 states in uh, the U.S. The middle state to join was Arkansas, which joined the U.S. June 15th, 1836. That was the 25th state to become a state uh, out of the 50. So we're going to guess a few others. Did they happen before or after the middle state, Arkansas? You ready to guess? Go ahead. All right, let's start with Arizona. Arizona, before or after Arkansas? I'm going to guess after. Absolutely. Arizona's uh, one of the newer states, not joining till 1912. February 14th, 1912 was when Arizona joined. Uh, New Mexico also joined in 1912. All right, here's a nice easy one for you, David. You're up by uh, one already. Uh, Pennsylvania, before or after Arkansas? I'm going to guess before. Yeah, that was an easy one. Pennsylvania, one of the original uh, states joining 1787, right at the beginning. All right, uh, let's go with another another easy one here, David. I hope this is easy. Maryland. Maryland, I'm going to guess before again. Oh, three for three, 1788. Uh, again, one of the earlier states. It was the seventh state to uh, join the Union. All right. This one's a bit trickier. California, before or after Arkansas, in which was 1836? I'm guessing after Arkansas. Oh, you're right. 1850. So a few years after Arkansas. Last one for you, David. Arkansas was 1836. Was Missouri before or after? I'm going to guess before. <laughs> yes, it was right before. Missouri was the 24th to join in 1821. A few years before Arkansas in 1836. Great job, David. You're really good at these uh, entry dates for U.S. states. I did not think that I would do this well but it seems to have gone well so that's good i would not have done so well thanks for joining us again on oh brother when art thou thanks for joining me david always glad to be here neil and if you want to uh, have a little input on our podcast please do visit us obrother.ca is our website you can email us at obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com or get us on twitter at when art thou Thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you next time.